Welcome to the Filling the Power podcast. I'm Greg Ashman and with me for this episode is teacher, blogger, writer, education thinker and raconteur, David Dydale. Welcome, David. Thank you very much, Greg. A great pronunciation of Dydale there. Very good. Well, I was worried I might get it wrong, so I've been practicing. Um, I always like to ask my guests uh, how they got into teaching. So let's start with that. Uh, what's your story? Well, I, there was really nothing else I was qualified to do. Um, you know, no, it was it was, it was desperation. Desperation. So, so when did you train? Uh, it would have been 1997, I think. And um, oh, that's the same as me. I trained in 97. Oh, really? OK. Yeah. So, so, you know, oh, those, those were the days. And, <laughs> uh, so I finished a degree and yeah. it in English and politics, obviously utterly useless. And um, uh, I'd spent, uh, after post-graduation, I spent uh, a year working for, oh, I can't remember, some sort of electricity board or something like that, doing the most tedious thing I could think of. And um, one of my friend's girlfriends was training to be a teacher. And I was like, oh, that sounds less dull. And she said, no, it is less dull. And I spent a day, uh, visit, you know, shadowing her, doing like doing other things, looking at the stuff she was doing. I went, ah, oh, I could do that. And, uh, and uh, you know, like it was like a pratfall. Yeah. It was so like standing on a rake. <laughs> I say so. So he, teaching sort of came and hit you in the face. What, where did yeah. you train? Uh, Oxford uh, University. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. Oh, okay. And what was that like? What did they What did they teach you on your teacher training? N not much of any use, I think it would be fair to say. Um, no. So you know the the, the usual. Um, you know, it was it was it, it was big Oxford. It was relatively academic, and you had to do some. Yeah, you, you know, you had to do you had to write some assignments and that sort of stuff. And they didn't really mind what you did as long as you got the assignments in, as far as I could tell. Yeah. Uh, we had to do one piece of original research, which I just made up. Uh, it sounds, and, they, and they liked it. They said it was really good. So it sounds like it, I did. I went to the Institute of Education and uh, I lived uh, mainly because they had a, a hall of residence in Euston, which I could live in which was kind right. of cool. And um, oh. yeah, and, and we had to do two assignments like that. We had to do, um, and I did one on um, boys under achievement. Right. And the other one was something about science education, which I can't really remember. Uh, yeah, I, I was, mine was something to do with improving people's progress. Yeah. I, I, and I have got a bound copy of it somewhere, but I, I literally would dread to... I'm not interested in looking at that. I think it would be a, a horrific surprise. I still remember what I concluded about Boys on Achievement. And that oh, was can that, you? Yeah, yeah, that putting posters on the wall, exhorting boys to achieve was ineffective. I think you probably, I think you're onto something. Maybe I was. You're right. So, um, oh, wait a bit, where's my questions? Okay, um, so... Uh, you started blogging, um, I reckon, uh, 2011, is that right? About the year before I did? Yeah, so, about then. Yeah. Um, so what prompted that? Why, why did you suddenly feel this need to, uh, you know, vomit out your feelings thoughts. and thoughts? Yeah, yeah no, well, I, but, uh, I, but I blame the, 
the ex-National Schools Commissioner David Carter for this. Oh, because right. I went, yeah. I just, <laughs> he's very well known. You're not coming across David Carter? <laughs> um, not, I, oh, did he write some review or something? The Carter Review? Is that the Carter of the Carter Review? I don't think so. No, no okay. I'm making it up. Okay. Uh, so David, so David Carter yeah. was uh, the first national schools commissioner whose job basically was to is to you know promote multi academy trusts and that sort of thing and sort of hold them to account. Um, and at the time, he was the CEO of the Cabot Learning Federation, and he was doing uh, a leadership course. And as part, and I would go along. I can't remember. It was one day a week, one evening a week, and I'd go. I'd go along to that. And one, on one of those uh, sessions, he said, is anyone here on Twitter? And nobody put their hand up. And he said, well, you should be. And uh, and and so, I, you know, being obedient and biddable, I yeah. joined Twitter. And, um, and, and to be honest with you, Greg, I've been blogging for some years before I did an education blog. I was blogging about books that I'd read and films that I'd watched and, you know, cultural stuff. And literally nobody ever read it. I think I had four <laughs> readers and, and, you know, I enjoyed, I, I enjoyed the process of writing, but it was, it's quite dispiriting. Yeah. If you think nobody's, nobody's reading and um, I can't on I think, I think I joined Twitter and saw that other people were blogging. Um, the, the first, I think the first blogger that I'm, I can, remember who they were was uh, a Scottish guy called Kenny Piper who you might have come across Kenny Piper is lovely yeah, lovely lovely so. man yeah. but and uh, and I read his blog and thought oh that's a thing I could do that and and people started to read it and and for the first time in my life I had an audience and uh, and that was very hard to give up and that moved like you 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 started blogging but fairly rapidly you were writing books and and how many books have you written? Like, must be about five, seven, seven. Gosh, and um, so how did? And then you you got into that. So were you sort of did, did the like the Svengali's at the TES or, or somewhere like pick up on you? Oh, he's the well, nice new young boy band blogger. No, the TES and I have never had uh, never been simpatico. Uh, no. I don't really know why, to be honest. I've never had a sort of concerted antipathy towards them but um, we've never got on for some reason they've never been interested in me and uh, and that's fine I've never courted that um, but uh, in the in the early days I um, was uh, made an associate of independent thinking in Gilbert's brainchild uh, in Gilbert of Funk's fame yes and uh, and and um, one of the another independent thinking associate is uh, Jackie Beer, uh, who of of the perfect Ofsted lesson fame. Yes, and I had read that and thought, you know, that was obviously compelling reading for somebody who knew nothing about education. And I got in touch with her and I said, "Oh, Jackie, I've read your book and I, you know, thought it was terrific. And I've got a few um, ideas that I, you know might make it even better." And uh, which she then used in a second edition, and. Um, she got in touch with me and said, would I like to write the perfect English Ofsted lesson? And I said, I, I would love to do that. And I did it. And I and I obviously now I feel ashamed of that. Well, just but before you, before you mention why, just for a little bit of context for 
uh, international uh, listeners who may not have oh, yeah. encountered Ofsted. Ofsted is the inspectorate uh, of English schools. And yes, certainly when I used to be there in the UK, they'd come around and they'd, they'd come into lessons and completely spuriously award the teaching some sort of grade. And so all, the, all these schools were desperately trying to please yes. Ofsted and game yeah. that system. And it's into that context that yeah, Jackie Beer's book lands and your Jackie book lands. Jackie Beer's book, The Perfect Ofsted Lesson, was like an amazing bestseller. It sold, it sold shed loads of copies. People couldn't get enough of it because it really was a step-by-step -step, uh, manual on how to get an outstanding grade for your lesson. And, and, and honestly, if you followed it, in, uh, in that time and place, you, would, you too would get an outstanding grade for your lesson. It was, and it was, it, you know, it's strange now to, to think, but we, 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 we all sort of collectively accepted that this was right and proper. And, and there was very little questioning that this was a sensible way to do things. And um, I've had various experiences of Ofsted. When I, when I was first Ofsted, Ofsted used to inspect on a seven point scale from like outstanding to really good to good to not so good to, to yeah. bitch you know and it was, it was, yeah. it was a bit more, now it's only four four point well they yeah. decided that there was probably there was a lack of validity in that scale so they well, had to <laughs> i don't know i've no idea what they decided but they did they, they eventually they moved to a four point scale for the first time i think the first time i well for the very first time i was in, uh, inspected was um i was teaching a cover lesson um, and i was working uh, I just moved and I got a short-term contract in a private, girl, uh, not in a private school, but in a girls' school. It was a very swanky girls' school, but it wasn't private. And um, and I was, the offload came and I was covering a lesson and I had literally no idea what I was doing. And they said it was outstanding, <laughs> uh, which, you know, obviously who's going to, who's going to complain. And um and then, and then I got a permanent contract in another school who, as luck would have it, were also inspected in, almost immediately after I joined uh, the payroll. And uh, I had this uh, year seven class who were completely feral and I would consider it to be a successful lesson if nobody had stabbed anyone else mm -hmm. with some scissors or that kind of thing. So. So anyway, the officer inspector came into the lesson and I most of the children spent most of the lesson in their seats, which, you know, yeah. a big win. Yeah. And, and at the end of it, she said, well, you know, that, that wasn't very good. And I said, I know. <laughs> no, it really wasn't. And I said to her, no, really earnest. I said, no, I realised it wasn't very good. But could you, you know, what would you have done? What, what, what should I have done? And she said, with that class, I have no idea. And, uh, and that was, you know, that Helpful. was the, that was, no, 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 I, she had no, nothing for me. And, uh, you know, there we were. Um, so you've written we seven. All, we both knew it was rubbish. Yes. Well, I, I used to have a thing. So um, my last school in the UK, um, we had a problem that um, basically it had been, good or outstanding or something. And then the head had retired uh, and we had a new head and the new head brought me in and all the staff uh, were 
Well, they were a bit, they were all focused on sports day and trips and all this sort of business and not on it's teaching and, and, and the results weren't very good. And the new head, new under the new Ofsted regime they brought in at the time, that whatever we did in the classroom on the day, we'd be in trouble because of results. And she was trying to convince the staff of this, but they wouldn't have, a, they wouldn't listen. They, they just thought, oh, the previous head would have made sure that we got outstanding or whatever, because they didn't. Because sports day. Yeah, so uh, it was it was just shocking. It was really hard to get any traction. And then uh, the one before that, I was a head of science um, in a school, and uh, we had they came in, and and we just we I remember coming up with this week. You know, differentiation is always a big thing they want to see, and we we created a lesson plan pro forma, and I put a box for differentiation, and I told all my staff to write by targeted questioning. And so they didn't have to do any differentiation then, really, because they could just say, "Who? I'm asking this kid a question. Oh, that's I'm differentiating by deciding which kid to ask." And that went beautifully, and we flew Is through it? that. Yeah, that went really well. So we kind of managed to pull the wool over their eyes there. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it was always a strange, and it was you'd have these like pretend ones where people from the local authority would come and pretend to be Ofsted. It's like it's crazy, really, that a school would divert its resources. Did you know that. it was pretend, or, did, or were you? Yeah, no, it? you knew it was pretend, and you'd have to sit with them, and they do. Do... Is that what they're called? Um, so what they were called for a brief, but very profitable period. Yeah, well, they'd come in from the local authority. I remember sitting with um, the uh, the one of the sort of like the English, like the authority would have like an English consultant and a science one, and for some reason, I'm sat there with this. English consultant watching an English lesson. I mean, what what do I know yeah. about watching an English lesson? And um, at the end, Obviously. we had to, yeah, we had to. It was like I, I had to say what I thought it was, and then the, the relief that the this other person thought the same. Like it was a real, um, it was yeah. a test of me to see whether I'd rated this yeah, lesson. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was a very strange yeah. thing, and from the perspective of not having it where I am now, it just seems like right. an extraordinary thing to divert resources into yeah well yes you could say that yeah um anyway what i was going to say so you've written seven books and your first book was um the it was a product of, of its time Greg. product of its time but it's fair to say i think that your you your views have changed over the, that journey and and what's interesting is that not only have your views changed but it's documented because you can go back to your early days of your blog, yeah. you can go back to your early books and you can. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and, and so like a lot of teachers talk to me about how their views have changed and my yeah. views changed, um, but they, I haven't documented it because by the time I started blogging, I'd come to a, a, a set of opinions that I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much yeah. with now. Um, although yeah, with refinement and various things, but there's no record of me when I used to think that constructivism was, um, the way to go. So uh, would you like to ex describe for me, please, how your views have changed from your perspective? And because changing people's views is so hard, like this yeah. is really interesting. Um, it's because uh, we've got, and you, we'll talk about your book later, but things like, you know, confirmation bias, we tend to look for evidence supports the views that we already have. Um, so could you give us a bit of an insight into not just how your views okay. have changed, but 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 
how what caused them what prompted them what were the what were the things that enabled you to change your views if that makes any sense okay well it was it's not it's not that difficult really that uh, i had never been uh, confronted with contrary opinions so everything that i had ever encountered within education was that the best way to educate children was to put them into groups to sort of find things out for themselves and to avoid telling them stuff and all of the all of the all of those canards and uh, and I just thought well you know people wouldn't tell me that if 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 that wasn't true uh, so it must be true and then uh, having made the mistake of joining Twitter I encountered people who didn't necessarily agree with that and it that was astonishing to me that that there were people who were prepared to publicly say, actually, that's not that's not the case. That we think something entirely different, and I'd I'd never heard that before, and so it took me quite a while to to, and I spent quite a bit of time arguing with people, going, "Hang on a second, you know, what about what about skills and uh, what about critical thinking?" And because I, I I had taught an AS level in critical thinking, I knew about it, yeah, and. Uh, and 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 I think that I was just worn down by the uh, the fact that other people the art the, the people I was arguing against seemed well at first I would assume that um, they just didn't know what I did so I would I would present them with information that would obviously change their mind and then they would say yes I know that and so then I would assume they were a bit stupid because they didn't understand the information that I'd shown them. So I'd explain it to them and, they, yeah. and then they demonstrate they, they understood it slightly better than I did. And then I assumed for a while that they were just evil um, and they hated children uh, because that was the only tenable explanation. Um, and, and, and I think that's where a lot of people stop. You know, the, the, the contrary view must be, you know, the, you must have run, encountered people who are Nazis or, you know, or some other form of horrid. And... Um, and I, and I remember I had a, a Twitter buddy who um, was at the sort of same, going through the, an identical process as myself. And our bet noir was um, Twitter's very own Andrew Old, who I know you've come across. And, um, and so myself and uh, James Theobald, who was another English teacher in a similar sort of situation, yeah. we, would, we would talk to each other uh, and say, you know, talk about what we were planning to do in English lessons and say, but what would Andrew say? <laughs> and then we would try and anticipate his arguments against what we were doing. And by the time, you know, after we'd been indulged in this for, I don't know, six months or so, we just thought, maybe he's right. And and that was the what that was the crack of, of doubt that was hammered into our consciousness. And uh, and it became depressingly evident as things continued that the likelihood that he was right was, you know, the balance, the balance was in his favour. And I think it's really interesting. People have talked a lot about, and people who don't know Andrew Old, he is, um, he is, a, he is you know, he is a, a, a real template for the keyboard warrior. He is, is indefatigable. And, and, and I think people get really, really cross with him. And I know I did. Because he's just relentless. He doesn't. He doesn't give up on a point. He's a dog of the bone. But when you, if you, if you look carefully back through the things that he's written, and if you're, if ever you're bored, it's kind of, it's interesting to look back through the uh, the comments that he left on the early years of my blog posts, where he's never rude ever. Mm. He's never ever rude. But I would be so incensed by his 
is is arguing against me. I get cross, and yeah. I and I be you know I get I get a bit shirty with him, and um, and I think this is still the case today. People get really really enraged by the fact that he's arguing relentlessly. You know, most people would just go, okay, whatever. You know, yeah. let's leave it there, or let's agree. To, I mean, one of my favourite classic Andrew Old lines was people would say to him, let's agree to disagree. And he'd say, he'd say, yeah, okay, you agree to be wrong and I'll agree to be right. <laughs> and then they would be incandescent with rage. Yeah. They just, and they'd call him names and all the rest of it. And he would be calmly but relentlessly, you know, saying, but, you know, what about that question I asked you? How are you going to answer that? And, um, and so you look back at all of this in the cold light of day and you think, you know, let's compare the kind of the emotive uh, attack and 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 you know, the the offensiveness of the people who argue against him and his his dogged relentlessness, which is you know, in, in objectively polite, um, and having sort of spent quite a lot a long and miserable time thinking about this, I accepted that he was probably right and I was wrong. So. Um... I mean, I know you're interested in this because you you wrote um, the 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 wrong wrong book we called "What If Everything You Knew About Education Was Wrong," and so yeah. I know you're interested in this concept of because we do have um, a very polarized like Twitter's very polarized and a lot of the trite yeah. there's two trite statements people make about Twitter. It's not real life like most teachers aren't on Twitter, so whatever happens on Twitter doesn't matter. So that's the first yeah. trite statement people make, and the other is well, it's just polarized, so yeah. uh, it doesn't matter. Um, what I say, um, or what people are just in two camps and they just paint the people in the other camps of baddie. No one's ever going to convince anyone else of an, a differing opinion. And so it's all pointless. But you seem to embody um, the, the, the lie to at least the second of those in that by yeah. being on... Yeah, no, very much. I don't know if you've ever come across, Greg, the debunker's handbook which is a sort of manual for how to try and convince people that they might be wrong. And one of the things they talk about in, and I don't know if you can put a link for your listeners to the debunkers handbook, I'll send you one. Okay. It's just been, it's just been uh, updated recently. That would involve and, me doing episode notes, which is not oh, something I'll I've- I'll do that. Uh, well, well, look- those People are, tell well, me I should, but it sounds like- They could just Google it, couldn't they? They could do, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. If they were bothered, if yeah. they were sufficiently interested, the debunkers handbook probably dot something after it. I don't know. Yeah. And it, the the one of the things that said that that that, that book that handbook says it's very short, very readable. Uh, it talks about the unswayable minority, um, and the, there's absolutely no point arguing against the unswayable minority because they are by definition unswayable. But the majority. Are swayable, and so I think what um, what what I've come to realise now you've probably realised this too, Greg, is that there's a the vast majority of people on Twitter and on social media and probably in life just just sit there watching and sort of thinking and sort of going hmm, and I think that they you know that most people judge other people, they judge them on their behaviour and their actions and their arguments, and they look at. The, you know the way, and, and I, I, I'm the first to admit, I've I, I've certainly behaved badly on social media in the past, um, but I think people weigh people's behaviour and think who seems to be the the most poorly behaved and who seems to have the most robust arguments. And I think that 
the, the, the sway of the majority begin to make their decisions. And, and so we're in a position now in, in 2020 in the UK where I'm based, where uh, it's now become, you know, the new consensus is that, that uh, people agree with me. And, um, and obviously not everyone agrees with me, but people agree with me. And, and, uh, and, you know, and I find myself saying things that I used to say to try and persuade people eight, nine, 10 years ago. And they're like, yeah, we know. Yeah. Yeah. I had the recent experience of reading the text of a book. It's a great book, by the way. It's called Asbo Teacher. It's not out yet. And the, um, international listeners, an Asbo, an antisocial behaviour order. Yeah. Um, you speak it into young people when they behave particularly horrifically. And uh, the guy, Sam Elliott, who's written this book, Asbo Teacher, was had an Asbo as a young chap because yeah. he was such a shit. And, uh, and he's written a book now on, you know, how to be an Aspo teacher. Yeah. But the, the thing, with, and it's good, it's really, it's compelling stuff. I loved it. It's one of the most enjoyable books I've read in a long time about teaching. But yeah. um, he, he qualified as a teacher in 2007. Gosh. And, uh, and, and oh, no, yeah, something like that. Anyway, yeah. you know, he basically qualified after, you know, a lot of, you know, the, the, the Actually, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he, maybe maybe he took his GCSEs in 2007. I can't remember. Yeah. But but anyway, by the time he qualified, um, the arguments had been had, and and a lot of a lot of these a lot of people had already been convinced. And he sort of came into teaching with you know a lot of the hangovers that still existed, but essentially into a world where these arguments had been made, and a lot of people were convinced. And and it's you know for people like like me who've been making these arguments for quite a long time, that's. Uh, that's a bit. It's a bit like having the rug pulled from under your feet. Yeah, it's it's different here um, in Australia. Well, there's a fairly robust debate about reading instruction, um, mm. but apart from that, um, you like wouldn't know about that. You're a science teacher. Yeah, no, and I'm a senior science teacher. So why why would I want to talk about what what do I know about reading instruction? But anyway. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, there's a there's a robust debate on that, and whenever we run research ed or something like that, uh, a lot the, there's a big focus on early reading, and lots of speech pathologists yeah. and people like that turn up. Uh, but the knowledge-rich curriculum stuff, um, for instance, uh, so there's two elements, isn't there? Really, there's like explicit teaching, which um, um, uh, it, it, the, there's explicit teaching of that's so that's the one bit a knowledge-rich curriculum, and you could. Uh, in theory, those are independent of each other. So you could have an implicitly taught knowledge-rich curriculum or you could have an explicitly taught skills curriculum. But in reality, the two tend to go together. And that argument is very much in its in its early days here. Um, right. People at my place are fairly convinced. Um, but when we interview graduates, um, so we call them graduate teachers, not NQTs. Uh, when we okay. interview them, they've never heard of Rosenstein's principles, or they've, you know, that they and they believe that kids should find things out for themselves, and that they'll behave if the lesson is engaging, and all this sort of stuff. So we're still in that at that point. But you're right. In in this, I I got uh, quite bummed out by Twitter a, a few years ago, and then I started to realise. So you probably have this if you've got a blog that's read by a few people and mine isn't read by as many people as yours but uh people will occasionally get in touch and they'll say oh hi greg you've been reading your blog just to say thank you i enjoy what you write yeah. and and these are people that don't get in touch on twitter and don't get involved yeah. in the arguments and i realize that when i'm arguing with someone 
who's passionately anti-exclusions, for instance. I know yeah. I'm not going to convince them of anything, um, but I, I'm now aware that there are a lot of people watching that argument and looking to see. majority. Yes, yeah. yeah. And so it kind of gives you hope because because that they're the people that move. Nothing seems yeah. to change on Twitter, no. but they're the people that move depending on... And, it, and really, if my arguments are not very good, I don't deserve to sway people. So, no. It, yeah. So and you it, won't. No. Um, so it, it's quite useful in that sense. And the other thing about it is it's like, um, okay, not everyone's on Twitter. Very few people are on Twitter um, uh, in Australian education. But the ones that are tend to be um, more influential. They tend to have more of an impact in their home, home schools and that environment because they seem they, they're tuned into more information. They can find um, yeah. arguments uh, research they can they can support their ideas in a way that makes them more influential in there which is why you were advised probably all those years ago to join Twitter um, so yeah. although it's a like small group yes yes thanks to yeah who didn't write a review um, uh, so the the fact that um, they oh I've lost my thread now but it's Sorry. just that they're, they're influential people in other words so they punch above their weight that's what I was going to say they punch above their okay. weight just like yeah. the people that listen to this blog, like the 300 people that will listen to this podcast, um, there's not They're a huge like number. They're like the Spartans, aren't they? The 300 who's yes. from Apple Eye or something. Absolutely. They, they are yeah. the intelligent ones. They are the, the yeah. elect. They, that's who listens back, to this. Come back with your shield or on it. That's <laughs> what we say to your listeners, Greg. Okay, right. Where are my questions? Oh, yeah. I, I wondered about... Um, asking you about this so just as a little case study of that if you don't mind um mm. solo taxonomy so at one point you were uh, big into the well not big into it but you blog about it positively and then yes. then you move away from it so could you just basically explain that little journey for us again and then we'll move off this topic of changing minds okay so uh so, solo taxonomy i can't remember what it stands for now it's been so long <laughs> Um, what structured, oh, I don't know. Anyway, it's it, people um, told me about it, and I felt very sort of excited about it. It felt new, it felt complicated, it felt like the sort of thing I should be doing. And it, I took months and months trying to understand it, and, and it was actually that was quite hard. Yeah. Um, and and the, at the time, there wasn't that much written about it. And I read Pam Hook, who was who's very big in New Zealand, and maybe some of your listeners will have heard of. And um, and, I, and I really tried to operationalize it in my classroom and did all sorts of things and then thought, oh, do you know, it's just a bit of a shag. It's just really hard work and I'm not sure it's having much effect. And uh, and so, yeah, so I, I wrote, I, I did a public recant where I said, I don't actually think it's all that cop. It's, you know, possibly useful for thinking, you know, planning and for teachers to internalize, but it's really not worth uh, explicitly teaching it to your students, which is what I've been trying to do. Yeah. And um, and then uh, a couple of years after I'd, I'd done this, I uh, had the fortune of running across at a conference, John Hattie, who, yeah. you know, everyone's favourite international education research megastar. Yeah. And um, he's a lovely, lovely man. I don't know if you've met John, but... Um, Very he, briefly at a research Edwards, but not didn't really right, have a right. chat. Well, he, you know, he we sat down together and had a chat and he said, so I see you're... You know, you're you know you're you're not really a fan of solo taxonomy, and obviously John is. Yeah. And we had um, we had a you know we had a 
a fairly polite but robust uh, back and forth about that, where I sort of made my case and he sort of nodded and all the rest of it. And uh, and I thought that, you know, that's really, that's the sort of, that's what it should be like. Yeah. That's what, that's what it's like talking to people who are just generous spirited, knowledgeable people where you can, you can, you can attack an idea and they don't take it personally. Yeah. But obviously, obviously when you've invested in something publicly and then recanted, some people get upset. Yeah. So some people were upset that you moved away from this abstract concept. Yes. Gosh. Um, before we, just before, I, I just want to say, so David's, uh, if you're not aware, David's written uh, a, a number of books, seven, well, you would be aware of that because you mentioned it, but one of them, wow. yeah, is called What If Everything You Knew About Education Was Wrong, which is kind of like why I've been asking this series of little questions here. And uh, in the introduction, uh, David says, by training and inclination, I'm a teacher. The ideas in this book are therefore viewed through the prism of my experience of working in schools, but they should be equally applicable to every other area where people want or are required to learn. The intention is to help you to develop the healthy skepticism needed to spot bad ideas masquerading as common sense. In doing so, I hope this will provide a better appreciation both of what learning might mean and how we might get better at it. And I, I think that that sort of mission of David's, um, the, the healthy skepticism that he wants to engender in us uh, is uh, very worthwhile, badly needed in education, particularly I would say in Australia right now. So um, yeah, if you want to explore those ideas a bit more, um, have a look yeah, at that book. Um, in fact, uh, subsequent to writing that, I wrote, I co-wrote a book with um, Nick Rose called yeah. What's Every Teacher Needs to Know About Psychology. And Nick uh, came up with a thing that he calls professional scepticism, which as soon as he explained it to me, I was like, oh God, that's exactly what I meant by healthy scepticism. Yeah. That profession that in you know the, the professional scepticism is being open to new ideas and, and the and the possibility that you're wrong about things, but but to be critical and to ask questions and to go, hang on a second, what if? And, uh, and one, one of the things that I've, because over the last sort of eight years or so, I've, I've visited an awful lot of schools and delivered training to, you know, a hell of a lot of different teachers. And, and sometimes, and I'm always thrilled when this happens, teachers go, hang on a second, what about, and they ask me an awkward question. And you've done this yourself, Greg. And, um, and, 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 and that's great, because that's, that's exactly what should, should happen. And then occasionally, um, a member of the SLT of the school involved will come up and go, I'm really sorry about so and so. You know, we'll we'll be we'll be like, you know, hanging them up in the oubliette afterwards <laughs> of that. And I go, no, don't, because they're the people who are engaged. They're the people who are really thinking about the stuff that we're talking about. And they're only asking those questions because they care. Absolutely. And and, and the people who don't care just don't say anything. <laughs> and they're the ones you want to be worried about. And um, no, to, I, I'm absolutely um, evangelical about the idea of professional scepticism, that, that, that teachers should be, well, that schools, school leaders should be tr making every effort to empower teachers in their schools to ask those awkward questions and to say, hang on a second, I, I'm not sure about this. this. You've said this, but some of the evidence that you've cited doesn't quite stack up, or I'm not sure, you know, that... that it would apply in this circumstance and and I think that those teachers who are asking those questions are such an invaluable resource uh, but 
but because of the parlous state of essentially of critical thinking and education, we, we punish people who ask awkward questions because they expose us and they make us feel stupid. So we get really cross about it. Now, um, you've recently gone back to teaching. Um, I had a question written down about that and can't find it. But anyway, you've, you've gone back to doing a bit of teaching. So what, what's that been like? Well, I've got to be honest, uh, it's not like real teaching because I'm working in three different schools and in one of the three schools, I'm there as essentially I'm doing English consultancy. So I'm sort of supporting an English department and I'm doing a bit of teaching as part of that. But it's not, you know, I just sort of swan in and go, how about that? And then in the other two schools, I'm just there one day a week and I'm, I am there as an ordinary teacher. But, you know, it's not that, you know, it's it's. It's very rare that I'm not that I teach a lesson and there aren't people watching me. So, yeah. so that's not the normal experience of teachers. And but I have to say, the thing which strikes me most about this experience of being back in the classroom, so mm. to speak, is that it, how effective I am as a teacher is 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 surprisingly dependent on context. So there's one school that I go into that I absolutely love going there. Uh, it's the highlights of my week. And, and I, you know, and, and I, and the teachers I'm working with, I love working with them. And I turn out these, you know, these lessons, which are, you know, they're just, it's just the way I teach. And yeah. then, and then the teachers in question go, oh, I thought that was fantastic. I loved that. You know, I'm going to try and do that myself. And, I, and I'm completely buoyed up by this experience. Yeah. And then, in another school, uh, they're a little bit more critical, and they say, yeah. "Well, you know, I wouldn't have done it. You forgot to do this." Or, and, I, and I feel a little bit. I, the way I feel and the way I'm treated makes such an, a difference to my effectiveness. I I hadn't really understood that until this experience. That that it's very rare, I think, that teachers. You know, you go to a school and you visit a school and you talk to them and you try and get a sense of, is this the right school for me? And you make the best the, the best bet you can, but you never get to see the counterfactual. You never get to see what it would have been like had you taken the other job. And I'm seeing, I'm living what it's like to take the other job as well as the one that you are <laughs> glad you took. And it's extraordinary because um, I'm, and the part of me feels I should in some way document this because I don't, I don't know that it's something that anybody else has, has has documented or written about in any sense but but I, i'm abs i've become more convinced than ever that you can you can take any individual no matter their starting point no matter their skill set and you can make them a rubbish teacher yeah and by the same token you can take anybody and make them a great teacher which and i think that's fascinating well that segues neatly to the next thing which i want to discuss which is your new book right. uh, intelligent accountability uh, so go on, what's the elevator pitch for, for intelligent accountability? Well, the, okay, so accountability is a good thing. Uh, we should be holding schools and teachers to account, but the way we currently do it or the way we normally do it is stupid and we should stop doing it in a stupid way, um, which, which forces teachers to do things that they don't think are the good idea, that encourages them down the road of perverse incentives uh, encourages them to be compliant, encourages schools to be compliant with things instead of um, striving to be their best. So we encourage teachers and schools to look good rather than be good. And uh, that's a bit dumb. Well, there you go. That's a, that's a good elevator pitch. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned very early on 
yeah. uh, struck a chord with me. I, I it's interesting. A, a lot of the things that you write about in your book are sort of it, it, reflection of um, things that we try and do at my place. Slightly yeah. distorted reflection, not exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, one thing that struck me was. Um, the, the uh, emphasis on humility so that's a big mm. thing so when I uh, interview and as I say only 300 people are going to listen to this so, so no one I'm ever going to interview will actually hear this one of the things I look for is humility and one of the questions I ask people is say it's a maths teacher I'll say what's the best yeah. way of teaching maths and the reason I ask that question is not because I expect them to know but I want to see how they deal with the question because if they tell me oh well you do this 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 I think well, are you sure um I'm looking for a bit of hedging, a little bit of uncertainty, a bit of, well, I've been told this, but I'm not sure. And and, and because, I, and it doesn't always work, you know, because um, no. the interviews are not a hugely valid way of figuring out whether someone's going to, um, how they're going to perform on the job. But it, it's, I am looking for that humility. Um, and I, but I sort of, um, I don't really, I didn't, don't really know why I'm looking for humility in teachers. Uh, I just, it feels right to me and it feels good and it sort of fits our culture. So can you tell me why I'm looking for humility? Um, okay. So, so I think that the, let's say, let's say the, the opposite to humility or an opposite to humility is certainty. Yeah. So when my big, I mean, certainty is very beguiling people, you know, we, we, we like, uh, especially our leaders in society, to be certain. Um, if you think about the way we treat politicians, that we we ask them questions, and if they're not sure, we get really, really upset with them. And you know, we want them to give these really certain answers. And and I think quite literally, we prefer people to be wrong than uncertain. And so there's a huge pressure on people to be certain. But as soon as you become certain that you're right about something, then you stop thinking. There's the people don't think about things that, where they already are sure they have the right answer. It's only when we're not sure that we, that we think, ah, oh, okay, well, what might be a better way of doing this? And so, and so when you, you, you are humble in that you're saying, essentially, you're, you know, the way you put it, you're tentative, you're, 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 you're not certain that you're right. Uh, then there is space for thinking. There is space for that, that doubt opens up a, a potential for a fresh way to see the world. And if you don't have that, that potential, then you, you're, you know, you're only going to see what you want to see. Um, in the book, I use the example, and as a mathematician, you'll be probably well aware of the Necker cube. And, and for listeners who don't know what the Necker cube is, it's just, it's really boring. It's just a 3D cube. Um, laid out in 2D, which, you know, everyone's seen a zillion of. But the, the thing I find fascinating about the Necker Cube is when you show it to people and ask them to stare at it intently, it, it, its dimensions seem to shift and they, what appears to be the back wall of the cube suddenly becomes the front wall. And, and this only happens when you in, introduce doubt and uncertainty and say to them, carry on looking and and, and you know, when you first show it and say, what's this? And they go, it's 3D cube. They don't see it. They only see it when they're uncertain. And I think you know, the slightly clunky analogy that I would make is when we look at things with a sense of, I'm not sure what's right, but I'm gonna try and look into this and, and, and work out as best I can what, what to do, then we're far more likely to see things that might surprise us. Yeah. Um... 
And I think that idea, I get really frustrated with how um, journalists question politicians, to be honest. And yeah, I think that's, yeah. that's part of it. Like, they ask all the yeah. wrong questions as far as I'm concerned, because um, I, I want the politicians to be honest and say, look, we, well, we don't really know what the best way to yeah. deal with COVID is. Um, but, you know, we've weighed it all up and we think this is probably the way to go for now. But, you know, we'll have to see. But everyone wants to go, well in this completely uncertain situation where nobody knew what to do, you made the wrong call three months ago, admit it. And then the politician goes, well, I know we made the right call. And actually it doesn't, none of that matters. Um, the last time, Greg, in my, as far as I'm aware, the last time that happened was Jim, when Jimmy Carter was president. And, you know, he was, he made the fatal mistake of going, oh, I'm not sure. And you know, <laughs> politicians were like, right, well, don't ever say that again. <laughs> And, uh, and that's been the game ever since. Yeah, and it's a silly one. Now, another thing that struck me, um, it was uh, mimetic isomorphism. So yeah. can you... Well, it off the tongue, doesn't it? Yeah. Can you explain what that term means? Copying, basically. Yeah. Um, so so it's it's something... It's uh, I, it, it, Rebecca Allen and uh, Sam Sims, who are a pair of um, basically economists, educational economists, um, took the took the idea of mimetic isomorphism. Or, um, blah, 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 sorry, put my teeth back in mimetic isomorphism <laughs> <laughs> from a study that was done, uh, a piece of research done years and years ago, and basically said um, that that what typically happens in schools and school improvement circles is schools look to other schools and go, what, what seems to be working? What are other schools being praised for? What are you, who's, who's got good results? Who seems to be successful? What are they doing? Let's copy that. Let's do that. And, and it leads to this process where um, we, we don't really know why other schools are better than we are. And often it's for intangible reasons, like Frank, you know, they're just in leafier postcodes. They've just got, they've got, the, the students who go there are a bit posher and it's got absolutely nothing to do with what the school is doing but the superficial trappings of what of school improvement then get copied and then get turned turned into code and uh, and and you know we basically have the blind leading the blind and it, it really struck me because um when uh, uh, if, if you go on a uh, so i teach in an independent school um in victoria in um uh, a rural area actually it's quite a big town 100,000 Ballarat but we're classified as um, it's not rural well anyway doesn't matter anyway, um, anyway not the point but if you go on any uh, independent school we're a bit different but if you go on pretty much any other independent school website they all say the same things they're all about the same things and a lot of these ideas they spread yeah like um, wildfire through the system um, so so the, well, yeah, no, yeah, exactly. But well-being, for instance. Now, obviously, yeah. everyone, every school is interested in the kids' well-being, but this is a relatively new phrase for that thing, and yeah. and every school wants to talk about that, and um, and things like project-based learning, they um, yeah. they travel through the system in the same way, often with very little, well, pretty much always with very little evaluation of research evidence or anything uh, substantial it's just that this is what all the schools are doing and because uh, independent schools i think it's particularly heightened they're, they're, they're marketing they want they want to yeah, uh, recruit students so they, they're trying to do they're trying to say things that will appeal to um 
parents to send their kids to the school. And, and this whole thing takes over and it gets in the way to a certain extent of, um, of, of just focusing on, on the nuts and bolts of how you yeah, make yeah, a school totally. really. Um, no, think... the, classic, the classic for this was uh, Westminster College, one of the, you know, the top public schools in, in England. Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, Greg, I know you told me not to mention anybody by name, but I'm just going to, uh, sorry. I mean, Anthony Selden, who was the master of yeah. uh, Westminster College, Wellington. was an absolute genius for pro promotion and, and particularly promoted the idea of ha teaching happiness. It's Wellington um, College, isn't it? Not Westminster. Did I say it was Westminster? Yeah. I meant Wellington. Yeah. Part of colleges. Colleges. It is Wellington College. And, uh, and, and you know, was talking basically selling the school on the basis that they're going to be teaching happiness and yeah. parents loved it parents yeah. thought I was brilliant and started sending their children there and uh, and you know you talk to to members of staff at Wellington who who taught through that period and they go it's a load of bollocks nobody ever did anything um it was just a great message and he was an absolute genius at that message and I think that you know that a lot of this mimetic isomorphism is it's just it's far more trappings than substance yes but you get sort of get trapped in the trappings and it gets in the way yeah. of the substance um, and yeah, yeah and that's where a lot of places are i think that that would be my reading um trapped, so, in, yeah. trapped in the trappings yes uh now you also discuss and this kind of links to what we've just said to be honest because this is one one of the issues you talk about the wisdom of crowds um oh. And obviously, yeah. if everyone's just copying everyone else, you're not going to benefit from this concept of the wisdom of crowds. So can you just explain that concept a little bit and what we yeah. need to do in order to benefit from it? Yeah, so uh, I, I'm probably going to pronounce this poorly, but uh, James Surowiecki, who some years ago wrote a book called The Wisdom of Crowds, which is a, it's a great book. I don't know if you've read it, Greg. It's a, it's a no, terrific read it's really really interesting he's a journalist he's not a, any kind of you know expert on this but he sort of sets out his case in a in quite a compelling way and and essentially he, he makes the point that that when we're individuals when we're isolated when we're in small groups we're far more prone to making errors than when we open up decision making as wide as possible with some very very predictable um problem issues and so um, he talks about the various ways in which, you know, the wisdom of disaggregating decision making as widely as possible can go wrong. And so in the book, I, I try to be, um, be forthcoming and here are the ways basically you can ball things up. Uh, try not to do these things. So try not to have a decision making body where there is significant pressure on the people in it to conform to a particular view and, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, it's, it's very easy to, to uh, undermine the wisdom of crowds, as Surowiecki puts it. But, um, but if you're open to diverse opinion, genuinely diverse opinion, and that you encourage people to disagree, you're, you're far more likely to make wise decisions. Which, and it struck me that that's kind of like the opposite of the way our wider culture is going at the moment. So uh, one of the things that gets in the way of harnessing the wisdom of crowds is emotionality you say yeah um yeah, yeah. so being really emotive another thing is uh, uh, you need this diversity well it doesn't get in the way yeah. what you need for the wisdom of crowds is you need this diversity of opinion and we have this mm. whole culture that seems to be about policing people's opinions um to root out 
these slightly uh, different ones that we could benefit from as if they're kind of weeds that we have to pull out of the lawn. Um, and yeah. so... Uh, yeah, you're right. I think, you know, if, 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 I ha if I was, you know, ever gifted with the benevolent dictatorship of a country, which obviously will never happen. But it might. It won't. But, <laughs> um, but if it did, um, I would absolutely make sure that I had somebody sort of in, embodying the, the, the extremes of, um, you know, what's often called woke opinion. And I would also have a, a real right winger as part of my uh, advice giving circle. Uh, and I would probably discount both of what was what they both said. But, you know, in that in, in hearing those dissonant voices, you're I think you're far more likely as well as getting a genuine diversity of opinion from all of the different sort of you know, ranges of views that are available to you. You're far more likely to 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 arrive at something that's genuinely wise than by um, having groupthink and just closing off. The, the circle of opinion to voices that just agree with you. And I think that, you know, obviously that, you know, you've just made the point that that's an issue in wider society, but I think it's a, it's a big issue in schools and, and in, in the UK, we have multi-academy trusts. I don't think you have, have anything quite so similar in Australia, but, um, but it, I think it's a danger that, that, that we have systemically um, that we, that that we have organisations which try to root out diversity of opinion um, so that we get more and more people agreeing with us. How, how is that going to help? How is that going to lead to, to good ideas and, um, and, and best thinking making its way into the system? I, you know, I genuinely, I, um, I understand why it's happened because yeah. it's, it's comfortable for people not to be disagreed with. But, you know, if there's one thing I've learned from my own experience, it's the, the things that make me most uncomfortable. That's where I'm most likely to, you know, if I pan for it, I'm most likely to find the gold. You suggest um, a more scientific approach. Um, and I think this means, and, and my, one of my uh, bosses at my place sort of talks like this a lot and says this is really important, um, that you, you don't just make a decision and move on um you spend some time in the dis in that space and you sort of take a step forward you go oh, wait a bit um that might be an unintended consequence and you withdraw again and then you move back in and you you suggest that if i'm not paraphrasing you incorrectly is a kind of more scientific approach than maybe the more gung-ho well, i'm going to make a decision i'm the i'm the leader and off we go um is that a is that a fair uh, comment well it's it's an acknowledgement, I think, that education, uh, as many other domains, is a very, very uncertain field where we don't actually, we, we never, no individual ever knows enough to make a perfect decision. And so you're only ever going to make more or less imperfect decisions. And that being the case, I think if you're a, a leader of a school and you know the very best you can ever do is to make a less imperfect decision, I think that's quite humbling. Um, to to accept that that there will always be problems with any decision you make, uh, you can just aim to reduce those. Um, that if if that's something you've internalised and you know that you've got there's, whatever you do, you've, there's the capacity for making things worse than you intended, then 
you're far more likely to just think more and ask more people for their take. And you're far more likely to go, hang on a second, what are the things we can put in place to put brakes on the, you know, the things that we've put in place so that if, if there are perverse incentives and unintended consequences, then we can try and adapt to them and make sure that they don't um, overshadow what we were trying to be intending to, to, to do. But I think that the, the, the overwhelming template of the leader in society and, and what's become, you know, the hero schooled leader is that they are, you know, that they know better than us. And, and so they, they come in and they make these, these bold and wise decisions. But I think these people are just lucky. Yeah. They're lucky risk takers. Um, and the only difference between a lucky risk taker and an unlucky risk taker is luck. Yeah, you know that they, they haven't been found out yet. They haven't yeah. ballsed up yet, and um, you know they will. You yeah. know, they, eventually everybody is going to be is going to be found out by uh, probability, and uh, you know the the the, the very wisest of uh, lucky risk taker leaders are the ones who get out of the game as quickly as possible, moving into consultancy and start writing books. <laughs> And have, no longer have skin in the game. They can't, yeah. literally, can't be found out ever again. And uh, um, and you know, I think that's a real danger. It's a real problem for the for the system. You write uh, when improvements aren't immediately forthcoming. School leaders start looking at what other schools are doing. This is back on the mimetic yeah, uh, yeah. thing. Growth mindset interventions, knowledge-rich curriculums, restorative justice, and start thinking about how to implement whatever seems most exciting. Just on that, um, yeah. Uh, You've mentioned knowledge-rich curriculums in there. Um, yeah. It's still a niche concern here in Australia. But um, have we? Are we? Do we get to look forward to some faddish implementation of them in the past? Is that what you're seeing? So that knowledge-rich curriculum. It's happening here and now. Yeah. There's some dreadful, dreadful things happening in the name of the knowledge-rich curriculum. Absolutely. Go on. Well, you know, just people sort of doing, you know, basically putting that label onto things. Yeah. Doing doing things which I, I, I feel, I mean, I, I, who knows? I could be yeah. wrong about this, but I look at what they're doing and think, God, that looks, that doesn't look wise. It <laughs> doesn't look like it's, it's, it's the probability that that will end up with individual teachers and individual students being better able to engage with knowledge. It seems remote, um, and, but it's got the, it's got the right branding. It's what, you know, here in the in, in England, it's it's what Ofsted currently wants, and so it looks good. And you know, I think there's a huge pressure on on systemically to to behave like that. Okay, so what what like so what does that look like? like is it just like people produce a documentation and not actually teaching? Or what what's it? What what are some of the the things that people so, are doing? Yeah. Okay. So so I think that that. A lot of the things which, which you know, your examination of the research into effective instruction might, you know, come up with and go, yeah, that looks like a, a good bet. I think those sorts of things are now being, you know, for instance, like retrieval practice, yeah. low stakes quizzing, which, which the research seems to indicate that that's probably a good thing to do in an awful lot of circumstances. Uh, it's it's a it's a decent bet. But what that's what's often what's often happening is that's being turned into something where teachers are being told you have to do this, and if you're doing it, you know we're, we're going to come and check that you're doing it, 
and if you're you know if you're not doing it you're going to be told off and in the name you know for instance you know just in the name of low stakes quizzing i've seen some some genuinely mind-bogglingly think mind-boggling things being teachers doing with the best will in the world because they've been told to do it and, and i look at you know what they're what they're quizzing their students about and thinking why do you what, honestly why do you care if the kids know this yeah it's this this is banal yeah you know that i know you taught it last lesson but why did you teach it last, <laughs> last lesson it was a stupid thing to do then it's a daft thing to ask them to recall now and uh, and uh, you know whenever you have a system which is which is predicated on compliance you create something where teachers are just second guess themselves and they go, I've, I've no idea why I'm doing this. I'm just being told yeah. to do it. So I'm just going to perform. So that's the key thing, isn't it? It's like you're teaching uh, the form that, that it's yeah. got to look like this, yeah. but you're not actually explaining the reasoning behind it or the research well, or the- more often, not explain, more often than not explaining the reasoning, you know, the, the teachers involved have genuinely no idea what, why they're doing what they're doing. They just know they've been told to do it and that if they don't do it there'll be some kind of you know issue and and so they just go along with it with you know the, the, why wouldn't they why wouldn't so they in that circumstance so this is they're, again they're not encouraged to be professionally skeptical yeah so this is a professionalism issue um it wouldn't happen to doctors or lawyers but for some reason it happens to teachers well bless them teachers they don't know any better do they mm. um and just finally on uh, intelligent accountability um, you make a distinction, which I think is really important, between treating people equally and treating them fairly. Would you just like to explain that distinction? Yeah. So, okay. So I think equality in, in the book and where I explain it is, is equality is, is, is treating people equally. But I, what I say is that when you treat people equally, you're automatically being unfair. And that if you want to be fair, you have to treat people according to their needs. So some some people, if you think, so in, in your case in Australia, you talk about graduate teachers, newly qualified teachers. If we give newly qualified teachers, graduate teachers, the same autonomy as really experienced teachers, that would be unfair. That would be foolish. So if, if you've got a recently qualified teacher, it's absolutely sensible to say, we are going to wait to see how you do and we're going to monitor some of that to see you know whether the decisions you're making are wise or not and uh, and if they're not we're going to actually compel you to do some things that we've decided collectively is sensible but i think if you do that with teachers who are really really experienced and knowledgeable you 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 know really predictable stupid things happen and so if you if you want to hold teachers to account intelligently you have to you have to allow individuals to earn autonomy, and so um, I don't think people should earn autonomy just by dint of experience. I think they should no. earn autonomy autonomy by dint of um, what they're what what they're what they're how they're behaving in the classroom or what they're what their students are producing and all sorts of other imponderables. But you go in and you go, you know, basically, I'm going to take a bet that this teacher is worth trusting and worth allowing to make decisions you know a looser way and and say to them what do you think is the best thing to do and then they tell you and you go okay i'll hold you to account for those things that you've told me are the right things to do and then for less experienced less knowledgeable less expert teachers i think it's reasonable to say to them look okay so actually just do this this is this seems like a really good bet uh i want you to try that for a bit 
if if you you know we can talk about it we can have discussions about it we can you know we can look at the rights and wrongs of it but but ultimately you have to earn the autonomy to to move out of my close control to something looser because you know you're just you're just less experienced you're just less knowledgeable and you will in the right environment you will you will get there um well david um thank you um i thanks for your time i think i've learned a lot from you uh this morning it is here it's the evening where you are i believe so um yeah so thanks for for uh coming on the podcast um and i look forward hopefully i can persuade you to come on again at some point in the future um but yeah um the intelligent accountability is a great book uh which uh, i recommend um anyone involved in school leadership to look up thank you cheers david (laughs) 